0: Good morning. I'm reading from Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37. That's the NIV version. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. "'leaving him half dead. "'A priest happened to be going down the same road, "'and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. "'But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, "'and when he saw him, he took pity on him. "'He went to him and bandaged his wounds, "'pouring on oil and wine. "'Then he put the man on his own donkey, "'brought him to an inn, and took care of him.' The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise.
1: Amen. Thanks, Mike. All right, so I just wanted to hit one thing before we hopped into our message today, and that is that um, people are scared of me, I think, which is why this section is always empty. (laughs) Because this is the direction I tend to speak. So you in this section, extra points, all right? (laughs) Anyways, that's what we call subtle guilt. Sorry. Uh, The other thing I wanted to say, other than that, was that... uh, in a couple weeks, on Wednesday night, when we have our, um, our Easter egg planning meeting, uh, we're going to have an Easter egg hunt back in the, the large lot we have behind our church, which is perfect for hiding eggs. Um, uh, we, we would love you guys to come. We always have this at our house, and we have it at our house for a reason, and that is that we like people in our home. <laughs> so, so please, if you feel uh, at all like you want to be a part of that, uh, we would really love to have you guys over. And just think and plan together and maybe stuff a few eggs and eat some candy, too, right? that that works. So uh, please mark that on your calendars. Um, Easter, this whole season, the Lenten season leading up to Easter is always this incredibly interesting time for a church, especially a church like ours uh, that's in this time of transition and growth and change. Uh, it's, it's powerful and it's good and it's important and it's also a lot of fun. So uh, we want to have fun together. That's important to Ashley and I. It always has been. So, All right. So before uh, we get into the text this morning, I wanna do a little mental experiment with everybody. Is that all right? I'm going to experiment on you. This is, okay. Um, he, uh-oh. So he, people uh, who study human development, uh, and if you, if you read any like child development books or anything like that, what they tell you is that it's very important for children to read books or to imagine, right? And one of the reasons that it's important for children to read or imagine is because it helps them get in touch with their emotions. It teaches children how to put themselves in the shoes of other people, correct? So um, if you have a child who has, uh, has gotten in a fight, one of the ways that you help them understand the repercussions of that fight at school is to either get a book that illustrates that or to tell a story that helps them understand or to put themselves in the shoes of the person or people they had that encounter with, really, what it does is it teaches that child empathy, so we have we teach our children to read not just so that they can read and you know not run stop signs and stuff, but so that they can learn how to be empathetic people, right? This is a good thing. Am I ringing a little, Charlie? Okay, good. we got it. Dan gives me the thumb up, thumbs up. only one thumb up, one thumb um, that's one of the reasons it's important for us to read and imagine with our children. We do this as a means of learning how to feel appropriately or learning how to feel with people or to learn how to be empathetic. And so if it works for children, I thought this morning maybe it works for adults too, right? It it, it just might so today, in order for us to really get inside of the passage that we're looking at and, and to get inside of the passage of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan, I want us to do a little bit of a mental experiment, okay? We're going to try to get, put our feet in the shoes of the Good Samaritan. So here's what I need you to do. Close your eyes. Everyone close your eyes. All right. And now I want you to imagine a person that you really really dislike, all right? This is, this is intense. It needs to be a real person, all right? Now imagine that that person whom you really dislike, someone you would most likely try to do everything in your power to not spend any time with, is in trouble. Maybe their car is broken down on the side of the road. It's an abandoned road and you need to help them. I mean, they are really in need of your help. What do you do? Will you stop and help, even though you really dislike this person? Now, as you drive away, how does that exchange make you feel? As you drive away from this, how does that exchange make you feel? Are you happy you helped them? Or are you happy you drove right past them laughing maniacally? Right? All right, open your eyes. Open your eyes. As Mike uh, read, we read the the parable of the Good Samaritan this morning. And I think too often when we read parables like this, what can happen is that we can distance ourselves from the story. But in the day that Jesus first told this parable, it was not a distant story. It was not a distant parable from his original audience. It was very near to them it created a physical, emotional response in them. The type of emotional response that maybe they weren't totally aware of. Maybe it was the type of emotional response that they weren't even capable of controlling. This parable that Jesus was telling had real teeth for his audience. It was not simply a nice little parable. And it's my hope that in doing this little experiment, you and I will be able to kind of put ourselves in the shoes of the first hearers of this parable, that we could catch a little bit of a glimpse of what the original hearers heard. So keep that person in mind, but more more importantly, keep that feeling in mind as we go forward today in the hopes that as we read this parable, you'll have a little bit more emotional resonance. There'll be something a little bit more uh, biting to it, like it would have been. To the original hearers, so open your open your Bibles. Is, is that how bad is that ringing? Can we do anything about that? Okay, no problem. would it help if I changed mics? Would it help if I moved back? Did that help? Oh, look at that. That kind of helped, didn't it? Okay. Well, now I'm even further from you, but at least at least I'm not ringing. All right, open your Bibles to Luke ten. Verses 20, uh, beginning in verse 24. So again, this story takes place along a road. Like we spoke of last week, we're in this series called The Road. It's a series of 10 chapters in the book of Luke, from uh, Luke 9 through, through Luke 19, where the writer of the book of Luke is constantly reminding us that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, that, that he is on the road, that he has a mission and a purpose. And again, Jesus is teaching on the road here. But this time, a lawyer comes up to him, a, an expert in the law, a religious person. When, you, when the text says a lawyer, um, what they mean is a pastor, essentially, a rabbi, someone who is an expert in the law. And this person asks this question of Jesus. And the question is very interesting, right? The, the question that this expert leads with is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Huh. A very interesting question. But notice that Jesus understands something about what's going on here. He understands that this teacher of the law, that this lawyer, that this religious man has some ulterior motives. And Jesus refuses to play ball on this guy's home field. He turns the question around on him. If you, if you read that passage, you'll notice that. So uh, Jesus, you'll notice in the scriptures, almost never makes himself subservient to someone else's agenda. There are always people trying to trick him or get him into these little games, trying to confuse uh, his message. And Jesus is never willing to play ball. He, but he's always, in, a, in some real and true sense, outwitting those people who are trying to catch him in these little mental traps or games throughout the Gospels. And again, this is one, this is one example of that. And so Jesus turns this around on this guy, right? So this guy asks a question in an attempt to trap Jesus in some sense. And then Jesus, possibly playing on, on this expert in the law's vanity, turns it around and, and says to him, well, what do you think, right? What do you think it leads to eternal life? What, how do you inherit eternal life? What do you think, teacher of the law? And this guy takes the bait. And this is what he says, he, he combines two passages in the Old Testament. The first is from Deuteronomy 6 uh, and Numbers 15. It's what's often referred to in the Old Testament as the Shema. Can you say Shema? Good job. That was excellent. This is the... The primary or central confession of the Old Testament, this is what every Hebrew person knew by heart. This is the first prayer or the first scripture that you learned if you, were a, if you were a Jewish child. This is the core of what it means to be a Jewish person. This prayer was prayed three times a day. It was prayed every day by every Jewish person in the world at this time. They knew it by heart. And when you ask the question, what, it, what does it mean to be a Jew, they would, they have, they would have recited the Shema, So here's the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be written on your hearts. And then he combines that with another passage in Leviticus 19.8 that says this, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one another among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, right? So this is a direct commandment from God. So he puts these two verses together, and in his day, in, the, in, in Jesus's day, this was a very common thing to do. This was the right answer to this question. Everybody knew it. This was not controversial, which is interesting, right? Jesus and this teacher agree. Jesus says to him, you're right? You are correct. Jesus also puts these Old Testament passages together in other places in the New Testament. Everyone agrees. Do this and you will live, Jesus says to the man. But notice what the teacher comes back with in verses 28 and 29. The teacher's not done. This expert in the law, this lawyer, isn't done. He's still trying to get at Jesus. He's still trying to make a point The teacher is not interested in what everyone already knows. He wants to drag Jesus into a more hotly contested issue in their day. He wants to trap him, which was the question And that uh, more hotly contested issue is the question he asks next. He says this, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Now, this is the big question, and this is the question that was hotly debated in Jesus's time. This really gets to the heart of what Jesus was attempting to address here, because in this day there there was a ton of debate around who a neighbor actually was. What constituted a neighbor? Because if you called somebody a neighbor, that meant you had to treat them a certain way, correct? You had to treat them well. You had to love them as a neighbor. And so there was a lot of debate about who a neighbor was. Who, Who counted as a neighbor? Some rabbis thought that only fellow Jews were neighbors. So only fellow Jewish people were your neighbors and were to be treated as a neighbor. Some other rabbis believed that only faithful Jewish people, so only Jews that were following the law faithfully, were your neighbor. So that excluded even people who were Jewish but weren't following the law. Other rabbis said that if a Gentile had converted to Judaism, that they were a neighbor and you could treat them well, right? You, you could treat them as a neighbor. And still others said, well, any Gentile you need to treat as a neighbor as long as they're nice to you, right? Another other rabbis said this, as long as they're nice to you, you can treat them like a neighbor. And so that maybe, maybe in Jesus's day, this was a question, it was a hotly debated one, maybe the, the title of neighbor extended to Gentiles converted to Judaism that were nice to you in your community. But that was only a maybe. But one thing was clear about this debate at this time, that people were not looking to expand the borders of what a neighbor was. They were not looking to expand the definition of what a neighbor was to people outside of their boundaries, to people with whom they did not agree or had something in common. People were not looking to expand the boundaries of what it meant to be a neighbor, or who was a neighbor. They weren't interested in that. They were more interested in defining the boundaries of who was not a neighbor. Does this make sense? They weren't looking to expand. They were looking to contract. They really wanted their neighbor to be somebody that they liked and agreed with. They really wanted their neighbor to be somebody they liked and agreed with. And the rabbis were all over the place on this. They really were. So it's like, it's it would be like, if a bunch of different pastors had a bunch of different ideas about what a book of the, or a passage in the Bible meant. I know this is a really big stretch, right? Because we all agree on everything all the time, right? Yeah, just watch a little Christian TV. But Jesus, in response to this question sets off, Jesus, instead of just answering him, sets off, on what is really one of the most incredible and well-known parables in the entirety of the Gospels. Really, it's the parable of the Good Samaritan and the parable of the Prodigal Son that stand above all other parables, in the kind of at least in Western American consciousness, as the two most popular parables of Jesus. Everybody knows what a Good Samaritan is, right? Even if they don't know the story very well, they understand that phrase. It's entered our language in some real and true way. Because this parable was so transformative. It's so powerful this parable that Jesus tells, that it it has formed what it means for us to be a neighbor, right? We even use it as a shorthand. We say, be a good Samaritan. What we mean is be a good neighbor, right? It's entered our language in some real and true way. So Jesus begins to tell this story about a Jewish man who gets beat up and robbed on the side of the road. And the one people, the one group of people who should uh, consider him their neighbor, the one group of people that should have stopped and helped him because they were religious Jewish people, because they were observant Jewish people, walk right past him. And the reason they walk right past him is because they have religious duties to carry out. Maybe uh, They had responsibilities at the temple. And if they were to stop and help him, they might have become ceremonially unclean by touching his blood, or by touching a dead or dying person. If you were a Jewish person, you believed that in doing that, you would become some, in some way, shape, or form unclean, and then you had to go through a process of uh, becoming purified. Oftentimes, that has to do with ritualistic baths and things of that nature. And you would have to do that, and it would stop you from being able to carry out your religious function for a period of time, right? They would have to, if you read the Old Testament, you understand a little bit of this. And this was not... Um, This was just a common thing in this in this day and age. This this kind of ceremonially clean and unclean was just they were common categories in the ancient world. So it sounds strange to us, but to them it was a very normal type of thing. And so these people, so these Jewish religious leaders, in a sense, they placed their religion over and above love of neighbor. But Jesus then introduces who the Good Samaritan. And what you need to understand about Samaritans is that they were a group of people that the Hebrew people simply despised. Samaritans were kind of like these half-breed uh, Jewish people. They were a people who lived in the north, the former uh, kind of northern kingdom of Israel. Um, they had intermarried with, with Jewish people, so they they were kind of half-Jewish, half-Assyrian, half, Jewish, half, Assyrian, half uh, kind of... a mix of people from the north. And they even said, they even claimed that they had a more accurate uh, claim on God. And so they, they worshiped God on this other mountain. They said they worship, if you read um, the story of Jesus with the woman at the well, she tries to get Jesus into this debate. She says, we worship up here and you worship down there. Let's figure this out. And Jesus doesn't want to do that. But they had this claim that they worshiped God too, and that they worshiped him on this other mountain, not Mount Zion, where Jerusalem was. And so because of this, there was all this cultural and religious animosity between these two groups of people, so much so that an Israelite would not actually travel through Samaria. They They would walk around, and they would take hours and hours more to get to where they needed to go rather than set foot in that territory. There was an incredible amount of just racism and hatred between these two groups of people. So basically, Samaritans were Israelites' least favorite people. And many rabbis, many experts in the law would have said, a Samaritan is not your neighbor. A Samaritan is not your neighbor. You simply do not have to love them. Many rabbis would have said that in Jesus' day. If, if a Samaritan was broken down on the side of the road, you just blow on right by. This is why the parable that Jesus tells is so radical. Because notice, Jesus does not even make the Jewish person the center of the story. He makes the hero of the story a Samaritan, right? So he's, there's no Samaritans here when he's telling this parable, but he makes the hero of the story a Samaritan. It would be like if I wrote a comic book and I made Captain America Russian, right? This is what it would look like. It would just, just would not make much sense. Yet in this story, the Samaritan goes far out of his way to love and care for the man on the side of the road. This is what the New Testament scholar Scott McKnight says. He says, He comes near the man, sees him, is moved by him, goes to him, bandages him, pours oil and wine on him, puts the man on his animal, brings him to an inn, takes care of him. Uh, takes out his money, gives it to, and asks the innkeeper to take care of him, says he will return and repay anything else. The Samaritan loves the man so much that he was willing to be inconvenienced. He was willing to put up the money to ensure this man could live. And the rub in this story is that the bad guys are the religious leaders And notice also who is asking the question in the first place, right? The religious leaders. So he is telling the story to a guy, and he's making that guy the bad guy in his story, right? This is what he's doing to his face. Jesus is not pulling any punches. Jesus is not going easy on this guy. He is cutting right through the middle of the debate in his own time surrounding this question, who is my neighbor? And he is challenging all of those assumptions that are made in his day about who needs to be loved or who needs to be helped or who is a neighbor. You see, by asking this question, who is my neighbor, the teacher was looking to excuse himself from loving certain groups of people. That's what he was attempting to do. He was attempting in some real way to excuse himself from loving certain groups of people, but Jesus transformed this question and turns it around on him, right? He kind of makes this man a spectacle in the middle of all of these people. So the issue Jesus is addressing here is revolutionary. In all of human history, actually, it goes against everything we've learned to do and believe because, you see, humans are instinctively tribal creatures, we are always drawing circles and attempting to define for ourselves who is in and who is out. Who are our people and who are not our people, right? We want to clarify this reality. You see, we naturally want to love the people who are like us and agree with us. This is natural for us, to want to like, agree, and love the people who are like us, and then to kind of exclude the people who are not like us or, who, or with whom we have disagreements. We don't want to love our enemies, right? We don't want to love and be a neighbor to those with whom we don't see eye to eye. We want to do good and be neighborly to the people we like, not the people we don't. This is natural. So who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? It's the person you disagree with most in the world. It's the person who you live in close proximity to. It's the person across the fence from you at your house. It's the person in need. This story leaves us no leeway. It doesn't. It does not cut us any slack. It does not provide any loophole or any out it does not allow us to demonize or vilify any particular set of people because they harm us or disagree with us. This passage gives us no alternative. The only law in the New Testament sense is love. We must love everyone. And if our religion gets in the way of our loving them, then our religion is misguided and maybe even wrong. If our religion gets in the way, like the religion of the religious leaders in Jesus' parable got in the way of allowing them to be a good neighbor. Because you see, this is what happens in religion. We get all caught up with being right, and we forget all about the law of love. Scott McKnight again says this, if your goal is is being right, you can wash your hands of a person. But if your goal is to love, you can't. Religion that flows from the heart of God, that emulates the character of Jesus, will never stand in the way of being a good neighbor. It will never give you an excuse not to love. This is what, in the book of James, James, Jesus' brother, reiterates this very idea in James 1.27. He says this, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is what James, the brother of Jesus, says good religion is. And very often in our lives, we allow being right, or the desire to be right, to kind of subvert our desire to love. We, we use it as this kind of religious crutch, as a means or as a way to not be inconvenienced, to not have to love. And yet, Jesus makes manifest for us in this parable that the way in which we manifest the eternal life that God has given us is by loving our neighbor. So this is one of the most interesting things about this passage, isn't it? That the question that leads this whole thing off, the question that begins this whole section, the question that is asked to Jesus by this religious leader, is what must I do to inherit eternal life? The biggie, just for the record. But Jesus does not say necessarily that being a good neighbor is the exact thing that leads to eternal life but he does seem to say that the way that we manifest this, the life of God that is in you is to love your neighbor. The litmus test for our, our lives of the presence of God is not how well we keep the law. It's not how holy we are. Because if, holiness, if our holiness is like that of the Pharisees, and gets in the way of our ability to love, it is not love at all. The test to determine if we love God is whether or not we love our neighbor, whether or not we love people. This is the test. This is the proof that the love of God resides within us. Loving our neighbor is the proof that we love God. James, again, the brother of Jesus, says this very thing when he says, faith without works is dead. And so if we say we love God and don't love our neighbor, there's no proof that we actually love God. Because once we have truly seen and experienced the love of God, A God who loved us when we were far off. The scriptures say, a God who loved us when we were his enemy, even. And Unless we've experienced that God in our hearts, if we have experienced that God in our hearts, we cannot help but love others the same way that we have been loved. Once you have felt the loving embrace of God love for your neighbor will naturally flow out. So some of us, when we were doing that little imaginative experience at the beginning of this message, maybe you had a realization. Maybe, you're, maybe you realize that you're still carrying some type of unforgiveness or ill will towards someone. Or maybe through the course of this message, you realize that your uh, goal is more often to be right than it is to love. Wherever we find ourselves this morning, whichever end of the spectrum we find ourselves on, I, I do believe that God wants to meet us here in some real and true way. Because it's only as we encounter the love of God that we are then freed up to love others. It is only as we encounter the love of God that we are in some real and true way freed up to love others. It's only as we love God that we're able to see in some some real and significant way the way in which we're supposed to love others. Because until you've experienced it, you can't actually do it. Because God is the creator. The progenitor of all good things. And until we experience him as such, how are we, fallen and faulty humans, going to do that? So, church, when it's at its best, is a place where we do that. It's a place where we encounter the love of God together, we encounter it in the face of our brothers and sisters and we encounter it in the manifest presence of God that dwells here amongst us. The scripture says says wherever two or three are gathered, there you find God in your midst. And so this morning, before as we uh, get ready to go, I just want to take a few moments, just a few moments, and just have us all kind of pray and reflect. And to ask God, to ask God, to show us his love, to be near us. And by virtue of our experience of the love of the Father, we are then able to go and love others. You see, the love of neighbor, the ability to love another person, the ability to love somebody who you don't like, does not come naturally to us. And it will not flow out of you until you've experienced a love like the love of God it simply won't it's not in there it is given to you so just for just for 1 minute as Dan plays i just want us to reflect and think and ask God just to, to love us for a moment to show us his love reveal his love to us. And then after a minute or so, I'll come up and pray.
0: Amen.
1: You know, in, in our tradition, the tradition that this church is a part of, the kind of charismatic evangelical tradition that we come out of, uh, there's a lot of, in the history of that tradition, there's a lot of uh, loud praying, maybe is a good way of putting it, right? If you've been a part of a, a church uh, like ours for any extended period of time, you know that that happens a ton, from time to time in Pentecostal churches. And that's a good thing. That's part of the reason we had a prayer and worship night on Friday, uh, to create some space to pray and to do those types of things, to be at the altar. Uh, But there's also this other type of encounter with God. So God happened, encounter with God happens in that way, right? But the scriptures speak often about the type of encounter with God that is still and small, that is quiet and seemingly insignificant that requires us in some real and true way to calm the chatter in our brains and to hear the goodness of God flow in, through, and around us. The vision of, or the image, or the picture of that in the Old Testament that we're given is that of wind, right? And that same image is portrayed in the New Testament. The word for the Spirit of God, the word for the Holy Spirit is pneuma, it just means wind or breath. And that very word has with it a kind of silenced quality, a kind of still and small quality. Now the wind can pick up, right? So in the New Testament, the wind of the Spirit can pick up and it can blow pretty hard, but very often it can be also still and small. And I think, I think the primary challenge for us in in this 21st century hustle and bustle world is to slow the chatter in our brain just enough to hear what what God might be saying to us. And the love of God that flows in the midst of that still small voice can and should transform us. If, 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 quiet enough to hear it. Let's pray. Father, we want to be a people who love. We want to be a people who manifest eternal life by loving those around us. Father, would you help us to do that? Would you help us to clear out the chatter in our brains? Would you help us to feel the love of you coming towards us, and by virtue of our experience of that love, would we be able to extend it to others? Would we be able to manifest it in our daily lives as we love our neighbors, as we love the people in closest proximity to us, as we love the people who we don't necessarily like, as we love the people who don't agree with us, as we love everyone? Father, help us to do that. Help us to be the Good Samaritan. Help us to be able to sacrifice our own safety and security for others. Help us to love that much because you loved us that much and laid down your very life for us. Father, I pray for anybody in this place who's dealing with unforgiveness and is saying, oh, I can love a lot of people, but I can't love that person. That's a common thing. Father, I ask that uh, healing would flow, that forgiveness would happen, that we would be able to let go of that unforgiveness, and that love could fill its place. Jesus, we love you, but we confess that we have not loved you enough. Would you help us to love you more? We pray it all in your name. Amen and amen. Go today in the grace and the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ.